All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome back to episode two of Sheep Thrills. Very excited to be, again, back in the studio, WRGW here today. Uh, today on the show, we're going to be covering a lot of what we talked about last week. We've got more to talk about. Of course, the whole debt limit fiasco is still ongoing. A whole lot happened this week, so we're going to get into that. Very exciting, very dramatic excited to talk about it. Uh, we're going to be talking about, I talked to, touched on, on this a little bit last week, but not in any kind of, uh, kind of detail, uh, but we're going to be talking about a lot of the leaks that have been happening uh, from Instagram and Facebook and all of the uh, committee hearings that have been happening with that. We're going to talk about, you know, as always, a few wild things that happened in politics this week, most notably with the governor and lieutenant governor of Idaho. Uh, and then I'm going to be at the end of the show, I'm going to be bringing on two of my new, or three of my new interns, Ethan, Grace and Preston, who are going to be uh, on the show throughout the semester. So they're going to be coming on and introducing themselves today. Very excited for you all to get to know them. They're going to be really great. And I'm yeah, excited to have them on the show helping me out with research and helping me out with stories. So you're going to hear from them a lot this semester. So without further ado, let's start talking about the debt limit. So obviously an extremely sexy, interesting story that seems like it's actually extremely boring and who cares. However, as I talked about last week, the debt limit really does have a lot of pretty profound implications for the American economy. Um, and the world economy uh, on, a, on a broader level. So with, when the, the government was unable to come up with a compromise to um, increase the debt limit, we did think that there was going to be some larger issues. Uh, however, we did come to a solution. So we actually got, this is the major update this week, is that the Senate approved a short-term debt ceiling fix on Thursday which basically means that they temporarily raised the debt limit for two months. So now at this point, they're actually going to have to readdress um, the, the debt limit when it comes back on, on December 3rd. So if you'll remember from last week, we also got a continuing resolution for the budget that's also going to expire in December. So we've got two new things. So basically all of the drama that was happening in the past couple of weeks is just going to come back again. Uh, in December. So we get to do it all again, which is so exciting and so thrilling. Um, so yeah, so they temporarily raised the debt limit for two months, which basically means that the Treasury is just funded um, up until December. So this was this is a very important vote in the Senate because the vote was actually 61 to 38. They were able to override a GOP filibuster, meaning they got 11 GOP votes to actually override the filibuster and get the debt limit increase. Um, inc included in those 11 Republican votes is Leader Mitch McConnell, which is pretty annoying. Um, or not annoying. I don't know why I said annoying. I think I was just, I hear the words Mitch McConnell and I immediately think annoying. I meant to say interesting. That's embarrassing. Um, so Mitch McConnell, he obviously is the Republican leader. He was only able to whip 10 votes other than himself to raise the debt limit. Um, and as I talked about last week, when he was going on and on about um, kind of his political posturing of saying that he was not going to participate in the raising of the debt limit. And as I also said last week that, oh, but he's just going to get over it anyway, and he's just going to raise the debt limit, and that's just going to be that. Guess what? He did that. Uh, even though he went on and on about how he wasn't going to participate in the raising of the debt limit, he actually was a major proponent in whipping those 11 Republican votes to raise the debt limit. Um, and the, the, the interesting thing with Mitch McConnell um, is that, 
he does not have a this this kind this vote to me indicates that he does not have as strong of a control over his caucus than he than we all perceived that he did. I don't know how the Republicans managed to do it, um, but they kind of did manage to flip this narrative so that we all believe that the Democrats were the ones in disarray when the uh, Republicans were like this one cohesive unit and they were all together and they're all going to vote together and everything was going to be great. Of course, based off of this vote where the the leader of the party was only able to whip 11 votes to um, pass this debt limit increase, uh, kind of indicates that he doesn't have as, as, as much control over um, his his side of the party that he, he thinks that he does. And of course, after the vote, we had, and, and also during all of the negotiations that were happening before, we had uh, uh, several Congress people, or senators come out and basically say that Mitch McConnell should not have offered this compromise to the Democrats. So most notably, Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham spoke out against Mitch McConnell um, after this vote. And the Mitch McConnell had to whip really hard to get these votes. Um, and even though he was spending hours and hours and hours trying to get people to support this compromise, again, he was still only able to whip 11 votes. Um, and all 50 of the, the Democrats managed to stay on and vote for this temporary debt limit increase, um, even though, again, Manchin and Cinema are also chaotic and no one ever really knows what they're actually going to do until the end. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting about this, and, uh, you know, it's interesting that we haven't actually seen anybody kind of claim that it is a bipartisan effort. Nobody's, nobody, none, no, no senator is currently lauding this effort as some major test of bipartisanship and everyone's working together and everyone's doing great. Uh, instead, everyone's just really angry at each other and everyone's still really upset. Um, after the vote, the majority leader, Chuck Schumer, he said, I'm going to read this quote. I thank my Democratic colleagues for showing unity in solving this Republican manufactured crisis. Despite opposition from Leader McConnell and members of its of his conference, our caucus held together and we have pulled our country back from the cliff's edge that Republicans tried to push us over, which is very intense uh, and definitely not, you know, you, you would think in a vote like this where there are, you know, 11, you know, 11 Republicans, which like 11 Republicans voting with 50 Democrats ever is kind of not something that's expected frequently. So you would expect in a situation like this, oh, the bipartisanship, we're all working together and we're all solving the issues of America. But instead, we get this vote and we get this, these 11 Republican votes. And Chuck Schumer basically says, actually, you all are terrible. And thank you to the Democrats for solving this crisis. But Republicans, you guys can get lost because you're the ones that created this issue. And as you'll remember from last week, I do tend to agree with Chuck Schumer on this um, in that the Republicans were the ones holding things up and being a little bit, uh, you know, being do, doing all this political posturing in a way that I don't think um, was actually effective for America and for our government. And, it, you know, we were really teetering on the edge um, of this, like, huge, you know, hitting the debt ceiling would be a really big issue. Um, and, you know, not, not being able to... Um, resolve this issue, I think would have been would have been a pretty big issue. So I do kind of agree with Schumer there. Do I think that he maybe articulated himself in the best way possible? No, I think that he maybe was a little bit aggressive. I don't think he was, uh, you know, fostering goodwill in any way there. I also don't think his intention was to foster goodwill in any way. Uh, I think he 
was really trying to just like rile up the democratic base, trying to prove to everyone, at least getting the sound bite out there, that the, the the Democrats are the ones that solved the issue and the Republicans were the ones that were dragged along kicking and screaming um, because they didn't want to participate in um, this solution. Uh, you know, and also trying to, I talked about this, the, you know, the whole Dems and disarray narrative. I say Dems in disarray all the time because I do believe that the Dems are slightly in disarray. Um, but he's trying to oppose this this narrative that is so pervasive right now that the Democrats, even though they're the governing party and they have the trifecta and the government, um, they actually don't know what they're doing. Is that true? Is that not true? I think still remains to be seen. But Chuck Schumer is doing everything in his power to say, no, the Democrats completely know what they're doing. They've got everything under control. Every issue that you have seen in the news, actually the Republicans' fault. Um, you know, it, it did this did this work? Did it did it show everyone that the Republicans are the ones at fault and the Democrats are all together? I don't think so. But you know, Chuck Schumer gave it the old college try. He's trying it out. He's seeing uh, kind of what narrative is working, what's playing well in the media. Although. As you may have seen on Twitter, if you're on the same side of Twitter as I am, you'll have seen that um, there was a meme of Joe Manchin with his head in his hands behind Chuck Schumer as he uh, was delivering this, this, this speech. Of course, that got picked up. It's all over Twitter. If you go to the, the Twitter for this show, which you absolutely should do, it's at SheepThrillsGW, you'll see that I made my own meme with the template. Um, but... Basically, we can see that Joe Manchin, we can assume Kristen Cinema, and a whole lot of Republicans were really, really upset um, by these statements. Just not, they did not think that this was the best way to do it. I'm going to assume that Chuck Schumer did not run his speech by um, any of those Republicans or those moderate Democrats before he went into it. Um, so, you know, he's trying to say that the Dems are in array. But then he's got Joe Manchin behind him reacting like viscerally uh, to this statement. So there's that. Um, what? Yeah. So what Schumer said is is valid. He's trying to push the soundbite, and you know he's just. I think at this point everyone is so frustrated by this process that I kind of respect Schumer for just like not mincing words, just saying exactly what he wants to say. Um, just because he's like it, it's this has been. I mean at least three weeks, maybe four weeks of this being like the number one story in all of the headlines. Um, it's just not, you know, it's not great. Um, so I think he's trying to, he's trying to prove to people, you've seen all these negative headlines about us. This is what the actual narrative is. He's trying not to mince words because he's going to say what he means and he's going to mean what he says. So we'll see if there's any more fallout from that. Um, he got the votes though. He he got the, he got through it. He passed the vote, 61, 61 votes to pass the to to pass this temporary debt limit increase. So, I think that it's honestly it's all good. Um, he got the votes. He did what he needed to do, and now it's all about spinning and it's all about that narrative. So we'll see how that continues to change. This is the biggest thing for me. I mentioned this last week. I'm going to continue mentioning it. This whole process is dumb. They're, they're, everyone is doing a bad job and they're all being, every single senator, you know, it's, it's the world's greatest deliberative body. It is not the world's greatest deliberative body. Nobody in that body knows what they're doing at this point. Um, I mentioned this a, little, a lot last semester on this show. I'll mention it frequently. My biggest, like, political hot take uh, is that we need to just get rid of the Senate. It's just, it's, it's, 
not doing what it needs to do. It does not help democracy. The filibuster basically means that uh, we can't get anything done. That's neither here nor there. The point is this whole process is dumb. And I think that this this quote from um, Senator Mark Warner, I think, captures this captures this idea nicely. He said, quote, this whole process is stupidity on steroids. And I read that quote and I said, you know, Mark, I could not agree more. This is stupidity on steroids. It's, you know, the infighting within the parties and then across the aisle for an outcome that we already know. Like I said last week, Mitch McConnell was going on and on about how he wasn't going to participate in an increasing of the debt limit. He wasn't going to, you know, work with um, Democrats at all. But when push came to shove and we were reaching that uh, drop dead date for the debt limit, he said, all right, here's a compromise. I'm going to compromise with you. Mitch McConnell, at least from what we know, um, Mitch McConnell was the one that went out with the compromise and he was the one who initiated um, those conversations. He was the one that was strongly whipping those Republican votes to raise the debt, the, the debt limit temporarily. So, of course, we don't know what's going to happen in two months when this all comes back onto the table. But I think that there, there's there's no reason um, to assume that once that December 3rd time rolls around, um, that the the Republicans aren't just going to cooperate again and they're not just going to participate in um, raising the debt limit again. Because, again, it, it, it's a it's a necessity. It's a necessity for um, the world economy to continue to operate. I also think, um, oh, wow, I just completely lost my train of thought there. That's embarrassing. Um, I think, yeah, the, the, what I'm going to say, the, the, what the Democrats, what some Democrats want to do is suspend, or not, yeah, suspend the debt limit. So basically just like get rid of it altogether. And the Republicans and more moderates just want to increase it. There might be more debate around that. And the kind of more progressive wing of the party might have to compromise on that. But the point is, it's a foregone conclusion that the debt limit is going to be raised. It gets raised every year. It's been raised every year for the past however many years. It, the, the, the Republicans do not want to be the ones um, that, are, that are held responsible for um, not raising the debt limit and then all of the consequences that are going to come after that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's the same outcome that I kind of got into last week which is, this is a whole lot of political posturing and not a lot of governing. My, like Senator Mark Warner, I'm like way over it. Um, and this is from all parties. I am very clearly liberal in my ideologies. That is something I <laughs> feel comfortable saying. Um, but I kind of, you know, with like, like, like last week with all the conversations about the infrastructure bill and reconciliation, um, I don't think that the progressives were necessarily in the right. Um, and I don't think... This week, I, I don't think that the, all the different parties that are trying to hold up the debt limit or hold up reconciliation or hold up the, the budget conversations in favor of some other idea or some other boon that they want, um, I just don't, I don't think that's the best way to govern. I don't think that they are doing their job for the American people. Again, way over it. Um, and now we're going to not have to talk about it for a couple weeks, um, a couple months, because everything has been pushed to December, which I also think is frustrating because, come on, we you guys have like a couple jobs to do. You don't really have all that much going on right now except for these couple of projects. Just get it done. Stop it with, with the, you know, because the thing is, once they approve a budget 
for reconciliation, they approved the debt limit um, in December. They're going to have to start the whole budget process over again in February. So it's just this like pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off. I just don't know. Again, I don't know if that's the best way to um, work for the American people. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. If you have any feelings, DM me on Instagram. DM me on Twitter. Let's have a conversation about it. Um, But anyway, that's all I want to talk about, the debt limit there. Again, it's going to keep coming up. We're going to keep talking about it. Um, It's really not going anywhere. Again, we're going to... I mean, I'm going to try not to talk about it every week. This week, I'm not talking about COVID at all. So we made it through one full week without COVID. Um... But this might, this, the, the debt limit and reconciliation might be the new COVID that we have to talk about every week. I'll try to keep it minimal, but we'll see how it goes. Um, but we're going to, it's, it's going to be around until December. We're going to be talking about it until December. Um, so anyway, that's all that on the debt limit. So the next thing I want to talk about, um, again, I briefly mentioned last week in my insane political story of the week when I talked about um, Senator Lumenthal asking um, if they could commit to ending Finsta, which as one of my interns pointed out to me today, just before I went on air, it was taken slightly out of context because he was trying to talk about combating misinformation on Instagram um, and trying to see how, if Instagram would commit to ending, you know, fake accounts and fake profiles um, on Instagram, which, I mean, I guess if you are somewhat technically illiterate, a Finsta is a fake Instagram, that is a fake person, that makes sense, regardless. um, So I mentioned that briefly last week, but I wanted to kind of get more into exactly what the story was around that um, and why Senator Blumenthal was even able to um, (laughs) kind of uh, to, to make that statement. So the, the, the biggest development that, that's happened there is that Mark Zuckerberg actually made a statement um, around the scandal uh, when he had previously been staying pretty quiet about it. Um, he was not present for all of the, the, the Senate hearings. Um, he was not really online that much during those hearings. Um, but he actually did make a statement um, a, a, around the scandal, kind of talking about different steps that Instagram and Facebook were going to take to... Um, kind of combat some of the issues that that came up. So if you're not aware of the story, basically what happened um, is that a whistleblower named Frances Hagen, um, she appeared before the Senate Commerce Committee to talk about these revelations that Facebook had conducted research and found that um, Instagram basically made mental health and body issues worse for some young, this is a quote, for some young users, particularly teen girls, and more broadly that its algorithms promote divisive and sensationalist content. So this is something that we have known. Uh, we have known it for a long time just based off of like empirical evidence, but it is interesting that the thing that's so profound about this is that we know that Instagram knows about it. Uh, Instagram and Facebook have known about this for a while and um, kind of haven't been doing anything about it. Um, so, I mean, the, the, my, my first reaction to this beyond, yeah, I, I, as, as a young woman who's been on Instagram since like, what, sixth grade, I, I know that it's not the greatest place for someone's mental health. But also, it's like, wow, crazy, shocking that a website, Facebook, that was invented by a man who got famous making a website literally to rank women. That's a bad place for women to be. I, for one, am shocked. Um, 
it's just we because we, we've we've known about it, all these things. Um, but I think the fact that Facebook had this information, was holding on to it, uh, didn't release it and then didn't really make any profound changes to the platform after they found out um, is, is, is pretty important that they that they didn't do anything about it. Also, if you have not seen The Social Dilemma on Netflix, they talk a lot about uh, talk a lot about how Facebook and Instagram and all these platforms are bad for democracy. Um, I had to watch it for a class this semester already. It freaked me out. I did not delete Instagram and social media from my phone, although I guess I probably should have. Um, but <laughs> the, the, the point is that this like divisive content that Instagram and Facebook are promoting lends itself to kind of the, the breakdown of democracy and the breakdown of like a lot of these like political institutions in countries in the United States. And also there's examples of it abroad, like all over the place. Um, so if you're interested in learning more about this and learning basically about the fact that we already knew that all these issues were um, popping up all over the place, um, you can, there's, there's all of this research that's already out there because this, this was an important whistleblower because there was this like specific written evidence and all these documents that were um, published. But all of these different, um, in, the, in the social dilemma, all these different engineers and um, computer scientists basically were explaining the fact that, kind of explaining how the algorithm works um, and kind of show, just showing how damaging it is for individuals. Because the, the thing about social media is that it's a, it's a, prob, a profit-driven business. So in essence, the, 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 these companies don't care about the individual user, or they're, at least they don't care about the individual u- user's well-being. They do care about profit, though. And the way that these companies get more profit is if you're staying on there for longer and you're clicking more and you're swiping more and you're um, engaging in more content because then you're seeing more ads, you're generating more revenue, blah, blah, blah. Um, so th- there's just, there's no way to you know, try to convince these social media companies to pay more attention to the well-being of the user because, in essence, if the user is is in a worse place, they're spending more time on social media, they're generating more revenue for the company, and so on and so forth. And it's just interesting that, like, objectively, we know that these social media sites are bad for democracy. We know that they're bad for our, our mental health, but they're so deeply entrenched in our lives that there's just literally no way to remove their influence um, from our lives, like, in the aggregate. You know, like, I watched this documentary, and I was like, wow, I, I am being, you know, I'm being commodified by Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for clicks and views, but, oh, Twitter's just so much fun, and I love spending time on there, so I guess it's okay. I'll just leave it. Like, what, what is that? Why, why were they able to get to the point where, they were able to become so deeply ingrained in our lives that there's literally no way to remove that influence. And even if you remove the influence from one or two people, um, like say I deleted Instagram and Twitter off my phone. All right, great. Now let's, you know, how many other people haven't been reached by that same message? How many of those, how many people are still on social media? So there's just no way at this point, unless you literally delete the source code um, to get rid of Instagram and um, Facebook and all these different platforms that are just kind of commodifying individuals. Um, I also think it's interesting how this connects to last week, literally one week ago on Monday, because when I came onto the show, Instagram was down, I got off, it was on. Um, but 
when Instagram and Facebook and WhatsApp all went down. That was that caused like serious issues for a lot of people, um, specifically with WhatsApp, because WhatsApp is kind of like it's like the main way people communicate around the world is that they use WhatsApp instead of iMessage um, and things like that. The fact that WhatsApp was down means that basically Facebook has control over the the communication, like the ability to communicate of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, maybe billions of people. So not only do they have control over our lives and our body image and our politics and the way we, um, the, the manner in which we interact with each other, they also control whether or not we are able to interact with each other in the first place. And so it's this one company that's controlling so many different aspects of our lives. How, how, how do we, how do we remove that influence? How do we get out of that? Um, and of course, the only thing I can think of when I talk about this issue is Queen Elizabeth Warren, uh, who talks a lot about um, kind of breaking down these big tech companies who just have so much influence, again, over our lives. Um, she talks a lot about how, you know, f- first of all, I don't think Instagram and Facebook should have ever been allowed to like join together and they should never been have allowed to acquire WhatsApp um, either, just because, again, let's 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 think about all the different <laughs> different aspects of our lives that are being controlled by this one big company um and and again like i said before it's a profit driven company it's a profit driven industry they don't care about the individual they care about uh, generating profit and if they if they can keep acquiring different subsidies um in order to increase their profit and control more aspects of people's lives then they're going to continue to do it because they don't. They don't care about whether young women are experiencing mental health issues, mental health issues or body issues, um, because it serves them to have those issues continue to come around. Um, I also. I, I think the fact that there were hearings in Congress about um, about this issue. I think that was important. I think that's a good first step. We also had hearings though with Facebook last year. Um, was it last year? Maybe it was a couple years ago. Also, some great memes that came out of that one with Mark Zuckerberg um, drinking water like a weird person. <laughs> it's like, I don't know why every single social media hearing um, generates some good memes, but it does. So that that's just where we are. Um, but I think that the, we didn't see a whole lot of like tangible outcome from those hearings last year or whenever they were. Um, and I'm not so sure we're going to see tangible outcomes from um this hearing either um and this is this is maybe like too macro i think that potentially some 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 members of my family might be like emily you've gone off the deep end with this one um but i think that it's it's important that if the federal government doesn't take action these big tech companies don't really take any tangible action it's important to me that these issues generally revolve around just young women and I think that it just kind of goes to show that, 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 that there's this huge amount of discrimination that happens against young women um, and how vulnerable young women are in the world, especially like, you know, middle school girls who are just like kind of coming into themselves. Um, there's, a, there's, there's a lot there. Um, and I think that the, just the, the discrimination that occurs against teen girls um, is is this deeply profound issue and, and mental health issues with teen girls that obviously have been like skyrocketing um, over the past several years, ma- mo- mostly linked to um, 
social media. If, if the federal government doesn't do anything about it, if um, big tech doesn't do anything about it, it's just like one more layer of discrimination against young women. Um, and I just don't know, um, you know, I just, I, just, I just have issues with the ethicality of that. Um, of course, if this was affecting, which of course it is, but if it was mostly affecting young men, I think that there maybe there be a bigger response. I, I just think that the discrimination against young women um, and just how marginalized they are and how commodified they are, I think that it's pretty profound that um, there's this there's this documented commodification of young women through big tech um, and how if nobody does anything about it, they're going to continue allowing that commodification to happen. I think that's pretty profound. Um, and I, I don't I don't know necessarily where does the blame lie, right? Does it lie with a big tech who just gobble up all of their competitors, take over every aspect of our lives and go on with their business, allowing, you know, people to become the, 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 the business? Um, is it the, the government for allowing those companies to join together in the first place? And is it is it the fault of the government for, um, is it the fault of voters for not voting in people who have a stronger understanding of technology policy and of social media uh, in order to combat issues like this, right? Like if, if we had more young people or more people who are educated in technology in Congress, would things like this have be, be happening or would we have a stronger response? Is that the issue of the government? Um, that people aren't well-educated enough, that, that senators and Congress people aren't well-educated enough? Is it the issue of the voters who aren't electing people who are going to deal with these technology issues um, more upfront? Is it, I don't think this is it, but just as an example, like is it the, the, the fault of parents? Should parents not be allowing um, their children to be on social media? Um, I don't I don't think that's the case because I think that it's something that's again it's so deeply ingrained in our lives that if you were not allowed to be on social media as a teenager um, or like as a young person you're completely disconnected from the world because that's the way we communicate with each other um, it's just there's there's no way to disconnect the world from social media and if, if you as a parent are not letting your children be on social media for any reason, um, then you're, you're disconnecting them from a potential community. I just think that's a, um, an important consideration. I also don't think that, again, we, we, I mentioned this, but I don't think that big tech is doing anything profound. I don't think that they're doing anything that is um, all that meaningful in order to combat these issues. Um, like Instagram is like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna hide the like count. Okay, well that's not that's not really gonna do anything because just because you're not able to like compare yourself um, against other people, you're still seeing all the people that are liking your picture, and you can obsessively go through and be like, oh, did this person like it? Did that person like it? Um, and so it's less visible, but it's still there. And you know, big tech has created this obsession that means that. People are people are going to do that digging and they're going to see what they need to see um, in order to compare themselves to each other because that's just the, the infrastructure already exists there. Um, and, you know, now um, now the, the statement that Mark Zuckerberg released that they kind of mentioned all of these other things that they're there, all these other policies that they're going to bring up. So like basically 
notifications to stop scrolling if someone's been on Instagram for a really long time or different mechanisms to nudge people away from that, that divisive kind of propagandized material. Um, my thing is, I don't think that gets to the root of the issue. Um, I think that the root of the issue is why does that like extreme propagandized material exist on the platform in the first place? As opposed to like, nudging someone away from it, you can nudge all you want. If someone wants to see it, they're going to see it. Um, so I just think that there's a lot to consider there, and I think that big tech is is fairly complicit um, in these in these issues. Because again, I'll say it once, I'll say it a million times. I'm a repetitive human being. It's a profit-driven market. They want to make the most money possible, and they make the most money possible by keeping people on the platform. And the best way to keep people on the platform is if they're comparing themselves to other people, if they have body issues, if they have mental health issues, or if they're deep down in a rabbit hole of um, different kinds of crazy propaganda material. So I think that there's, again, like every story, things are going to keep coming up with this. Um, I, I don't talk about a lot of like technology policy things on this show. But I do think that this is a really interesting kind of hype. You know, it's a it's a it's a combination of like this is an issue that's happening in the tech world, but there's also these deep, deeply profound policy impacts that we need to talk about because we need to um, kind of to have a have a policy response to these issues because right now, we, you know, we can expect the the companies to fix it themselves or expect parents to fix it themselves they're not going to do it so now we need to have a, a, a you know a policy or a political intervention in order to actually solve the problem so now last story i want to talk about today before i turn it over to our new intern friends um is this is my insane political story of the week this is a good one. It's not actually national politics. It's a state politics story of the week, which is lovely. Kind of mixing it up a little bit. So when I saw the story on Twitter, I literally had to like put my phone away, put, put my phone down, like walk away because I was laughing so hard at this story because it is just so supremely ridiculous. So um, the governor of Idaho, Brad Little, um, left the state for he was actually down on the border um, between Mexico and the United States on some border trip with a couple other Republican governors. But he, um, so he left the state and the Idaho constitution basically says that when the governor leaves the state, um, they have to give executive power to the lieutenant governor. So the lieutenant governor is basically acting governor for the time that the actual governor is out of the state. So Lieutenant Governor Brad Little is out of the state. He gives the um, executive authority to Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeechan, who then basically immediately starts issuing executive orders. Like, but not like, not like ceremonial, like cute little executive orders, like broad, like sweeping executive orders. Like one of them was like banning state officials from requiring vaccine passports, like changing like Idaho's COVID policy in like profound ways. She also, this I think is just fabulous. She actually went in and um, tried to do some research on whether or not she was able to like mobilize the Idaho National Guard to go down to the border and assist with whatever's happening on the border, which is just so wild. Because as we all know, Idaho, a, a, a border state, 
you know, obviously the border security is a big issue for their state politics, question mark, question mark. Um, And the the other insane thing about the story is that it's the second time that this has happened. So there's another time that Governor Little went out of the state, gave executive authority to the lieutenant governor, and then the lieutenant governor went through and issued a bunch of executive orders. It's the second time that this has happened. Are you kidding me? Um, And just it's clear that these guys do not get along at all. Um, They ran separately, like not on a ticket together. Um, So they definitely aren't besties. Um, And the other thing that's interesting is that she has said that she's going to run for governor. And Brad Little has not said that he's running for re-election. So it's just, it's clearly like she's just trying to kind of put herself in a, in a position where she's like, when she's running for governor, she's like, well, I already did all of these things and I already have all this experience being acting governor. So therefore, I'm very well equipped to be the governor of the state. I, um, yeah, so I just feel like this is just an insane story because... Like, how are people allowed to act this way? Like, was there, was there no advisor um, in the room being like, no, you can't, ex- you can't issue this, like, sweeping executive order? Like, I just feel like, I, I don't, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if this is, a, if this is the same theme with, like, various different state constitutions, but it kind of seems crazy that just because the governor, like, leaves the state means that they are, have to, like, give up their executive power for, like, the weekend that they're gone. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's just a me thing, but I feel like the Idaho, um, I don't know, state, state Senate needs to, uh, do a little bit of work there reforming the constitution because I feel like that, I mean, not to be dramatic or anything, but like that was straight up a coup. Like he was, like she was just issuing political positions that just had nothing to do with the actual governor's political opinions so I don't I don't know about that, but it certainly does not seem like um, it was uh, the, the the most the most appropriate use of her executive power in that short term. Um, but we'll see we'll see if there's anything that changes with that, or if you know we'll do as as always we love to cover elections on the show. So um, once we get more information about the Idaho Republican primary, maybe we'll chat about that for a while. Because I think that's the only thing that could possibly be more boring than talking about the debt limit more is talking about a Republican primary in Idaho. No offense to anybody who's listening from Idaho, but I don't know about that one. So that's all I want to cover today. So we are going to take a little break. um, And when I come back, we're going to introduce my interns. I'm going to chat with you a little bit um, about why they're involved in WRGW some of their own um, kind of fun political stories that they want to talk about. And you're going to hear from them a lot more this semester. So we'll just be back in just one minute. Okay, and we are back. Um, So we have three interns on the show this semester. So my first intern with me right here, his name is Ethan. Ethan, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Ethan uh, Beggy. I'm from uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and I am a uh, freshman majoring in political science, possibly double majoring in econ, possibly minoring in econ. Uh, I'm still figuring that side out. Fabulous. I know. I'm, I am I tend to urge people away from econ, but that's just my own personal bias. <laughs> we'll discuss later. All right. So we're going to do like one or two discussion questions per person just to get 
every the listeners a little bit of a feel of everyone's kind of politics a little bit. So first question I want to ask you, very casual, is talk about a little bit who you supported in the 2020 primary um, and a little bit about like why that that candidate kind of met your own political needs. Um, well, I, I, I was between both uh, Biden and Buttigieg. Right. Did you did you want to talk about like why? Um, I thought they uh, both had a lot of very practical um, ideas, um, you know, especially, um, you know, in this current political climate. I thought that they both had a very, you know, they both had, you know, I could go into specific uh, <laughs> political. Sorry, I could go, I guess, into specific political things I agreed with them on. But um, yeah, um, I, when Buttigieg dropped out, yeah, then I guess I was fully behind Biden, especially kind of when that Super Tuesday kind of time came up. How do you feel that Buttigieg is doing as transportation secretary? Uh, I don't follow the Department of Transportation that closely, oh. but um, um, I'm sure he's doing well. We're gonna have to resolve that. I'm a big train girl. I talk about infrastructure a lot on the show, so we'll 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 get Ethan talking about some some transportation infrastructure. All right, great. Anything else you wanna you wanna say to to the people in your first your first appearance on Cheap Thrills? Uh, hello. <laughs> great, love it. Awesome. All right, so our next intern is Grace, another freshman. Grace, do you want to come up here and introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Grace. Sorry. <laughs> I'm Grace Chernowski. I'm from Seattle, Washington, and I'm a journalism major. I'm also a freshman. Fabulous. All right, so do you also want to talk about who you supported in, in, in the 2020 primary? Sure. In politics? Um, well, I think I could definitely say to begin that in 2020, my uh, primary focus in life was not politics. Uh, <laughs> and that is the, so valid. Because that of the pandemic, so yeah, it was, it was not an easy time for all of us. But um, I was uh, somewhat of a Bernie supporter, Bernie Sanders. I also supported him in the 2016 election. Um, but at that point, I was really just following what my brother did because in 2016, I was not, uh, I don't know. I wasn't very in tune with my political beliefs but also uh, you were what you were in eighth grade yeah <laughs> yeah no you're okay you did you you definitely i, I mean I, what I, was, I was in ninth grade so it's like right. you don't if your if your political ideologies change between freshman year of high school and freshman year of college i think that's a good thing yeah <laughs> i yeah. think you're okay yeah so i definitely um you know i i see the good and bad qualities in in almost all the candidates but um in terms of actually executing what he wanted to do, I was always, you know, somewhat skeptical of Bernie um, and and his goals, but I definitely uh, supported him the most as a person um, because I think that his political beliefs have been the most longstanding and steadfast out of almost all the candidates, um, and I really like that. So yeah, fabulous, awesome. I was an Elizabeth Warren girl myself, oh. so I yeah. I, I, I appreciate Elizabeth Warren, for sure. I don't know if I was ever... I, I mean, I appreciate that she's a woman. Uh, <laughs> there you go. That, that's that's a big priority for me. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I understand that. I, I The ideology and the actual ability to, like, get things done. It's important, a big part Important of it. things in candidates. So, awesome. Great. Yeah. Well, Grace, welcome to the show. Is there anything you would like to say 
to the people? Um, I just like to say that you should continue streaming Sheep's Thrills because it's awesome. Hell, heck yeah. And I look forward to being a part of the show. Awesome. Thanks, Grace. Well, welcome. Welcome to Sheep's Thrills. All right. And our last intern um, is Preston, who's going to come on now and introduce himself. Preston, would you like to say a little bit? Hi, um, my name is Preston Schiller. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. Um, Major year? I'm a I'm majoring in international affairs and political science. I'm a sophomore. Fabulous. All right. Do you want to talk a little bit about who you who you supported in the in the primary? Well, um, I very much think that we are at a divided time in our country right now, and it's important for us to come together. So. I supported a candidate who I felt would do the best job bringing people together and uniting this country. And, um, yeah. Fabulous. All right, Chicago is a very dramatic political place. Do you have any, do you have any good stories um, from Chicago politics that you want to share with us? I do, actually. Um, I was, it was a couple years ago, um, I was at this place that's called the... Uh, Adlai Stevenson Center for Democracy. It's like, it's basically um, the Stevenson family is this family in um, American politics. Um, the first one, Adlai Stevenson, the first was, I think, Grover Cleveland's vice president. Um, and then the next one was the governor of Illinois. Um, and then the third one was a senator from Illinois. So then th they eventually didn't, like, I think they eventually donated the house or something and they just had events there. And then there's this like guy who's like 80 years old, 90 years old, or something like that. He's a former senator. He clearly doesn't want to be there listening to the um, um, someone from the um, Canadian consulate like talk about stuff. Like he doesn't want to be there. Um, the last time he was in office was 1980. Um, nice. The wife's more involved, but he's. And then I was talking. I was like Senator Stevenson. Um, how have you been? Because I was, it was like the second time I met him. I was like, um, last week I was in the hospital and I almost died. And like, <laughs> I continued oh on Lord. that conversation. Yeah, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was. He he always like enjoyed telling me stories about like the last time that he saw President Kennedy and stuff like that. So those that was always fun. Awesome, awesome, great. Well, I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about Chicago and and we've got good good some good Tennessee politics too. So. I'm sure that we will do a little bit more like local politics moving forward. But with that, that is all I wanted to talk about today. I'm very excited for you guys to hear from all of my interns in the future. Um, once again, follow the show on social media. You can follow on Instagram at Sheep Thrills Radio and on Twitter at Sheep Thrills GW. I'm going to be posting all of my um, intern social medias. I'm going to be posting a Spotify link to the show tomorrow and a bunch of sources. I'm actually, I actually remembered to record the show this week. I forgot to do it last week. Um, so I'm actually going to be able to post um, this this week. Um, so yeah, if you guys, again, once again, as I, like I said last week, if you have any suggestions, if you have any ideas, um, if you have any comments about the show, as long as they're at least somewhat respectful, feel free to DM me anytime on social media. Love to chat with you guys um, more about what you guys think about the show and, and anything that I can improve. But with that, that is it from me this week. Um, and so we will see you next Monday at 6 p.m. All right, have a great week, guys.